are listening to an Enoch Pratt Free Library podcast. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey starts here. Here. Um, my name is Emily Sachs. I'm um, here from the African American Department at the Enoch Pratt Free Library. Um, thank you for joining us tonight for Writers Live. We are very excited to have you here. Um, please come back again for our future events and bring a friend the next time. Tonight we are honored to be partnered with NAMI Metropolitan Baltimore for an important conversation with Sharita Cole Brown talking about her book, Defying the Verdict, My Bipolar Life along with Emma Snyder, the owner of the Ivy Bookshop. After their conversation, we'll have a Q&A, and then there will be, t- will be time to mingle and buy books from the Ivy. Before we begin, Carrie Graves, the executive director of NAMI Metropolitan Baltimore, will introduce Sharita. So please welcome Carrie Graves. Thank you. And I'm going to leave most of the introduction of Sharita up to... Emma there. <laughs> but I do want to take just a minute to tell you a little bit about NAMI Metro Baltimore and, and also thank the library for import, uh, for hosting this important conversation about mental health tonight. At NAMI Metro Baltimore, we believe in um, open and honest conversations about mental health, that those are critical to combating the stigma that still surrounds this issue. Mental illness are health conditions, just like any other. Um, and, uh, and mental health conditions affect one in five members of our community. So they're your neighbors, your friends, your colleagues, and your family members. Uh, We're here to provide hope and help. We offer education, support, and advocacy. Uh, We have programs for individuals who live with a mental health condition as well as for their family members and caregivers. NAMI's classes and support groups provide opportunities to connect with others, feel less alone, and to gain insights from others who have been there too. And all of our programs are free to our participants. Um, I invite you at the end of this presentation to visit our table outside uh, to learn more about our programs. Um, and our, all of our programs are peer-led. We have some of our volunteers here this evening. We have over 270 volunteers, all of whose lives have been impacted by mental illness. We're so fortunate to count Sharita as one of those um, dedicated volunteers. She has a powerful story to um, share, as, as you will soon hear. Um, for the past two years, she has been sharing her story through our In Our Own Voice program all over Baltimore um, through presentations to help raise awareness um, for mental health. Uh, she has an incredible way of connecting with people, especially young people, uh, with her warm and engaging presence. Um, most recently, Sharita was elected to the NAMI Maryland Board of Directors, which is a great accomplishment, where she is providing leadership and insight to NAMI's work throughout the state. Um, I personally had the pleasure of recently reading Sharita's book, and I can tell you that Sharita's life would be extraordinary under any circumstances, setting aside her diagnosis. She's just an extraordinary individual overall. So. We are grateful to Sharita for using her voice to help um, others understand mental health, and we are so glad that she is here tonight um, with us. Thank you. Good evening, everybody. It's just wonderful to be here. I thank you all for showing up. I thank Emma for being here with me. I'm going to read you before I read from the book. On the back of the book, it says, Against doctors' predictions, Sharita Cole Brown has been able to manage her bipolar disorder for more than 25 years. During her final semester at college, Sharita Cole Brown suffered a psychotic episode, frighteningly reminiscent of her grandmother's own breakdown and subsequent hospitalization. Afterward, she was diagnosed with a severe form of bipolar disorder. And then, mining my memories, I detail my struggle to accept my diagnosis and to create a life full of love, hope, and success. One of the praises for this book comes from Kay Redfield Jameson, the author of An Unquiet Mind. And she says, Define the Verdict is a wonderful book, deeply human, full of life's joys and suffering, full of the author's courage and faith. Sharita Brown describes her bipolar illness in telling detail. Her writing is powerful and eloquent. I highly recommend 
this book. So I'm going to start reading to you a few sections from the book, and then Emma and I are going to have a conversation. And as they, as they said, when we're done, we welcome you to have questions that you might have. So the first thing that I'm going to read to you is what really kept me in a position where I didn't talk about being bipolar for many, many years. In chapter 25, each chapter starts with a quote. Chapter 25 says, if you have a powerful gene, you get the illness no matter what. It will come bursting through. And that's from Gloria Hockman in A Brilliant Madness. I have endured being called crazy at different times in my life. I understand witnesses to my off-kilter behavior lack the understanding and language necessary to process what they were seeing. With limited understanding, they reached conclusions similar to those I formulated as a nine-year-old child after I visited my grandmother who had a, psych a psychiatric break. And I went to visit her in Springfield State Hospital. Now that I have achieved a largely asymptomatic, even mood, people who know nothing about my mental health history sometimes speak quite pejoratively in my presence about those who suffer with bipolar disorder. Some people expect those suffering with bipolar disorder to swing from chandeliers, and we do sometimes, and exhibit all manner of outrageous behavior continually. I have remained silent, never attempting to correct their unlearned notions. I now understand the truest motivation for my silence. I did not want anyone who had no idea to know I was one of the crazies of whom they spoke. And now I'm going to read to you what happened to me when I decided that I was well and that I didn't need medication anymore, and so I took myself off my pills. Chapter 23, I am terrified by this dark thing that sleeps in me all day I feel its soft, feathery turnings, its malignity. Sylvia Plath from the poem Elm. The lithium thorazine mix was intended to normalize, read, dull my moods. Thorazine was used to treat schizophrenia, and the doctors were just covering their bases. It was hard for me to enjoy the new version of myself, yet I was coping. I went to work. I went to church. I went to church services in other states, but I really missed being energetic. I placated myself with the reminder, the medications are working, the medications are working. The therapist I saw each month at the Mount Pleasant Clinic agreed. I selected this hospital for psychiatric care because it was reputable and it offered a sliding scale fee. My temp job did not provide insurance. Although I hoped nobody would see me coming or going to my appointments, I did not miss them. Life continued. I vegetated in the accounts payable department at the Johns Hopkins University. My sister Karen married her longtime boyfriend in September 1983. I was a bridesmaid in the wedding, teaching Sunday school, provided a glimmer of joy. On a Sunday in mid-October, I arrived at service late having missed the Sunday school class, and bright colors were prohibited in the church that I went to. You have to understand that. So I was wearing a tabooed red silk blouse with my acceptable purple pencil skirt. During the morning message, the preacher spoke of taking burdens to the Lord and leaving them there. I decided I'm healed of bipolar disorder, and I thought I'm taking my pills to the Lord, and I'm leaving them here. At the end of the service, I knelt at the altar, placed my pills on the rail, and left them there. I informed my pastor I would not be needing this medication anymore, and I went home. After my mother called him, Bishop Byron brought the medication back to me the next day. That week, I called out sick for two days. On the first day, I visited the recreation center around the corner and skated with the kids. I shared my imagined upcoming wedding with the center's director before leaving. On the second day, I visited a neighbor and shared that good news with her too. 
completely out of character for me. I missed prayer service on Tuesday night. Then when Wednesday came, I decided, you know, I had missed my ride to work, but I decided to ride public transportation to the Hopkins Homewood campus. I decided to get off the bus before my stop and walk three quarters of a, mi- qu- three quarters of a mile to the campus singing the song Home from the Wiz. As I scampered along singing, when I think of home, I think of a place where there's love overflowing, sometimes in full voice, sometimes whispering, but always evoking the emotion of that song. I stopped at an apartment building along the way to check on residents I did not know. No one was at home. I happened to have a religious tract in my purse, which I pushed under the door of one of the four units. When I got to my building, one of the women from Human Resources summoned the director of accounting services, a very kind man who took me into his office, having my supervisor join us. I vaguely remember being put into an ambulance, which took, which took me to the emergency room at Union Memorial Hospital, at the intake department of at the intake department of Springfield State Hospital. Having no insurance, I was shipped to Springfield Hospital once more. How could I become manic while taking such a strong dose of medication? I had taken my medication as scheduled until, as scheduled until I left the pills at church, at which point I was already cycling. I found my answer in a Yale University research study. Investigators discovered that some bipolar patients who suffered relapses while compliant to their medication routines experienced manias triggered by the feeling that they were compelled to lead lives that ran counter to their inner desires. As in 1982, one of the intake doctors thought I was schizophrenic rather than bipolar. I'd had a bipolar diagnosis since 1980. So I'm going to read you a Springfield Hospital Center history sheet. Cole Sharita Lynette, case number 106-242, October 11th, 1983. This is a 23-year-old black female sent to Springfield Hospital Center with two physician certificates citing patient brought to emergency room by fellow employees at JHU because of unusual behavior. Patient has been employed since May 1983 in accounts receivable. At Springfield, she is suspicious. She wants to read her paper. Then she stands up and yells hallelujah in a manic manner. Although she has been diagnosed with bipolar disorder, patient gave impression that she's suffering from schizophrenia. She was given Haldol 5 milligrams, immediately sent to the immediately upon being sent to the emergency room. Most of the time, the patient was sedated, unable to answer any further questions, and the provisional diagnosis was schizophrenia, catatonic, and then bipolar disorder. This patient was immediately moved to Hitchman D. Ward. Some doctors convinced that African Americans are neither smart enough nor creative enough to have bipolar misdiagnose us with schizophrenia. This happened each time I was committed to Springfield. Fortunately, the doctor I saw the following day maintained the correct diagnosis of bipolar disorder as the second doctor had in 1982. Uh, Well, thank you to Sharita, all of you for being here. Um, And thank you to Sharita for reading and just giving us Oh, we have to oh. use our mics. Oh, right. <laughs> I was getting too comfortable. Um, uh, thank you to all of you for being here tonight, and thank you to Sharita for reading um, wonderfully from her book, I think, and giving us a little bit of an access point into the content of it and then into her voice, uh, which is a wonderful piece of it. Um, and that last reading you had, I think, leads into a really fundamental question I had while reading, and I know we've talked about it a little bit, which is the experience of minorities when it comes to mental health issues. Uh, and when we were just talking about it earlier, you know, that there may be, we can think of them as sort of at least two, but two broad components of that. One, The first is sort of 
the cultural relationship to identifying as mentally ill within certain communities. Um, but then the second is the treatment differences that you run into and the way that your behavior and your experiences are interpreted by other people. And I just sort of, that I feel like what you read really kind of hits very, in a really succinct way on that issue. And I'd love to hear you talk about it a little bit. Well, the thing about minorities and mental illness is it's not just that doctors don't um, understand minorities and mental illness. They are looking for what would actually, in 1982 and still some now in 2019, they are looking for the way Caucasian women process mental health. So they're not looking for the way Christians process mental health. They're not looking for the way African Americans process mental health. They're not looking for the way Asians process mental health. They're not looking for the way Hispanics process mental health. As I had spoken to Emma before, there is a woman whose name is Melody Moetzi, and she is um, from. She's she lives in the United States. Her parents are from Iran, and when she developed bipolar disorder. In her native language, Farsi, there was no word for bipolar disorder. So that, that is a, that's, a, that's problematic. And then you had another part that you wanted yeah, to Yeah, well, I, was, I, was, that, I feel like that hits, you, you really got at both of them, the sort of the cultural component, the lack mm-hmm. of language in some places mm-hmm. or in some environments or access to language and no familiarity, but then also the way people get interpreted by others outside mm-hmm. the yes. community and sort of that, I think a lot of what you're hitting on there is just around issues of what it is to be normative, you know, yes. what, it, what, what do we define as normal? How do we define it as normal? Which I think is, is very much entangled with right. definitions of mental health. And it's very interesting, Emma, what you were saying, because if you give somebody a medication that is not the correct medication for their illness, you will exacerbate their illness. You're going to make it worse. If you take a person who is not schizophrenic, and you give them schizophrenia medication, what they're going to be having is a medical reaction to the, med- to the medicine. Right. So th- it, it's not going to make them better, and you're going to be, oh, well, they didn't get better. Of course they didn't get better. That's not medicine for what they're going through. Yeah, no, right, and it could bring on other kinds of yes. instincts or behaviors mm-hmm. that are, again, then going to be interpreted in a certain way. Um, it actually, that... that makes me think of a bit at um, toward the end of the book where you, you speak and uh, or you write in your voice uh, a bit about your relationship with faith, which is another real through line through this book. Yes. And you're, um, as you, as was there in part of what you read, um, and you have a quote actually that I thought was really lovely or put it well, but um, you said, you'd, I rid myself of the torment that accompanies the fear of relapse. I accepted the biblical truth that rather than the spirit of fear, God had given me a sound mind. And again, yes. I, th- I feel like that ties into that idea of kind of what, what, is, it, what is it to be a human with a mind? Yes. How does that mind function? And what is it we're told about ourselves versus sort of what, what we experience? And, you know, the th- interesting thing about that is so often, especially with mental illnesses, people have a tendency to separate their mind from their body or their brain from their body when we're dealing with mental health. If I had an aneurysm, you'd be, oh, yeah, she's having something that's going on with her body. But because people cannot see mental health challenges, they can't see them. It's nothing that you can see. Then it's like, okay, that's crazy. That's something I don't understand. And it's also oftentimes something that scares people. And when people are afraid, they don't deal with it. Most times when somebody's afraid, they just back away because they're scared. Yeah, no, I think that, that that's true, and that also speaks to moments in the book um, where members of your family and people in your life were afraid of for you and were empathetic in that mm-hmm. fear as well, but sort of wanted to manage the situation. Your father, um, yes. certainly, I feel like that was a large part of his relationship with you and your illness. And the thing that was very interesting about my family is that I had a family that circled around me because what happens sometimes when people are frightened is they put the sick person over 
on the side because they're scared and they, they don't circle them in, they push them away. And in the book, I talk about my Aunt Nellie. I, um, my Aunt Nellie, for those of who have not read the book, um, is my mom's great aunt. And she was my grandmother's sister, my great uncle's sister. My grandmother and my great uncle both had what they called manic depression then, bipolar disorder. There was no medication. My aunt, at one point in the family home, at a very young age, I think she was 18, her brother was 16, my grandmother and my uncle were in their 20s, and so she's managing herself, her younger brother, and her two sick siblings, all in the family home, so that when I got sick, what she was wonderful for me in was that she talked to me about the illness, which was very different than my mom, who I guess what I would say about my mother, and I, you know, I don't think anything is bad with this, my mother was raised by an actively bipolar woman. And so just imagine if that's the mother that raised you, and then that happens to one of your children. There's some guilt in there, you know, there's all kinds of things in there. Like, I didn't, she didn't expect that to be one of her children. Yeah. And so here we have this bright young woman who's going to the Little Ivy College and doing all these great things. And then she's being, my parents are being told, this looks like she's going to end up needing a custodian. Right. No, I mean, that must have been terrifying. And I think that, that brings me to... What, the book jumps off, um, it, you know, it follows the arc of Sharita's childhood into young adulthood, uh, just up until the moment she's getting married. And the opening chapter um, tells this really, uh, I think, startling and uh, startling story um, about her grandmother who comes to live with them when she's seven years old, has bipolar, as she said. And I think Sharita was prepared to read a little bit from yeah, that I'm scene. Yeah, read a little bit. And it's actually the second chapter because what I do oh, is right. I open the book. You know, sometimes people do um, a little prologue, but I didn't do a prologue in my book because um, my first chapter was Stare the Rat Down. And that wasn't a prologue in my life. That was my real life. So I started off with hospital records You're right. from yeah. when I, no, that's, yeah. cool. that's cool. That was from, from the psychotic break. But chapter two, when we really part from those records and go back to my childhood, is when we meet my grandmother. And I'm trying to read you a short part of my grandmother. Okay, um, my grandmother came to um, live with us. I can still see Granny Ruth, a caramel-colored black lady in her 50s, who stood five feet, three inches tall. She always wore a house coat, socks, and slides or slippers in the house. When going out, she wore stockings tied just above the knee with matronly slip-on shoes, and she never wore makeup. Her eyes sparkled. She had a ready smile and an irreverent sense of humor, speaking things in my hearing that my devout, sober-minded Catholic mother would have prohibited deeming such utterances inappropriate for young ears. My favorite was, if you're sad, stick two fingers up your tail and get glad. Of course, I didn't know the connotation of this phrase. <laughs> the idea of anything, anyone doing anything that seemed like that, it just seemed outlandishly funny to me. I welcomed the, the occasional bodiness. Granny's zest for life amused and delighted me. Granny, Granny quickly became a member of our working-class Baltimore neighborhood. Our corner house had one of the largest yards, plus a non-working barbecue pit in its corner, plenty of pit space to play and make mud pies. Since my outgoing grandmother spent much of her time at home with our family, she quickly became a part of the neighborhood, and the children in the neighborhood came to know and love her as well as we did, and many of them called her Granny right along with the Cole clan as my grandmother, as my mother referred to us. Granny's residence at our house on Finney Avenue ended abruptly on a spring day in 1969 
After I arrived home from school, before I could change out of my school uniform, I noticed my grandmother had propped our front door open with a porch chair. And this was unusual because Granny always lectured us, keep that door closed so bugs won't fly in this house. What happened next was even stranger. Wild-eyed, my grandmother began hefting our living room furniture onto the porch. Out went a lamp, out went an end table, and this is heavy furniture, out went a chair. She performed her task frantically with unusual strength like an erratic Hercules. My three-year-old sister Linda, who was usually right up under my grandmother, was staring at Granny from the couch that remained in the living room, tears forming in her eyes. Though, though she spoke to herself under her breath, I think I heard my mother say, I have to do this. Trembling a little, she picked up the phone's receiver and dialed. I scrambled over to the sofa to grab my baby sister, who by this time was crying silently. Mama pleaded into the phone for help before placing it back on the hook. Standing transfixed on the far side of the living room, she could see the street outside our front window while keeping an eye on my sister and me. She avoided Granny until the police arrived in what seemed like less than a minute. My mother walked out to the porch and stood behind Granny as two officers walked up our front steps. They spoke calmly to my grandmother. Ma'am, exactly what's happening here? What's going on? From inside the house, I heard Granny scream, go away and leave me alone. I ran to the window and saw one of the officers take my grandmother by the arm. She yelled, get away from me, and then she turned and punched him in the chest. In response to this unexpected resistance, the policeman handcuffed my usually docile grandmother, cited her with disturbing the peace, and placed her in the police car. Not long after they arrived, they drove away. By this time, my older sisters were standing inside the front door with our mother. She was shaken, not tearful. Grabbing my little sister by the hand, we walked upstairs to my parents' room where she began to cry audibly. I sat on the bed and held her on my lap. Five-year-old Teeny, another sister, lay next to us in wide-eyed silence. Thank you for that reading. Um, I mean, I think that everyone probably now gets a real feeling for the voice of the story, and I think some of the things that come through in that passage for me are the the familiarity, the love, the affection for the family, but also the intensity of these emotions and the intensity. I think especially in that in that scene, exactly what you're talking about, your mother's tension, right, between having had a mother who, who she's had to call the police on and have see sort of taken away, yes. um, and then seeing that sort of reemerge in you. And so I think exactly as you said, actually, that the first chapter are the, your medical records, and it immediately goes back to that. Yes. It makes it feel like a, a bit of an origin story. Where it then goes from there, uh, for everyone who hasn't read it yet, is, um, is Shruta's grandmother is taken to a psychiatric institution, and a few weeks later you go to visit her mm -hmm. there. And it's a really unsettling experience for, for you. Me, yeah, yes. can you talk about that a little bit? For me, when I went to um, Springfield State Hospital, and that's actually where I ended up years later. But when I went to Springfield State Hospital, I felt like that was going to happen to me. You know, so what I read to you about that dark thing that sleeps in me, I felt like that that, that was in me, like something within me at, at nine, I think, connected to what I was seeing. And I don't know why it connected, yeah. but... It, it connected. And I think, you know, I'm going to read you something. Because what, what happened to me at the end of the chapter, I wrote, as I grew older, I sometimes experienced disturbing and disjointed thoughts that increased in frequency with the passage of time. In eighth grade, fearing the worst, I decided to share my suspicions about myself with my oldest sister. I'm the third of seven children. Though she was only four years older, I trusted her wisdom. Now, I whispered, I think I might be crazy. She answered matter-of-factly, Sharita, everybody's crazy. 
Well, and I think that one of the things that that is is there in this book and is certainly there in that moment um, connects, you know, there's a truth in that that we all laugh at, right? Everybody is crazy. All of our brains work differently. Um, And yet for some people, this is a more intense experience and a a much more significant thing to wrestle with. Um, But you read a Kay Redfield Jameson quote at the beginning, uh, who's a remarkable writer, someone else who has been diagnosed with and struggled with bipolar. And um, you said that you've always been really sort of interested in and moved by a phrase she uses, which is the silently successful. Uh, this, This idea of people out in the world who are living and struggling with mental illness, but aren't necessarily showing that to people yeah. and and that that sense of secrecy that there are things we know about ourselves mm-hmm. and things maybe we can share with very particular people but that we can't engage with in the world is sort of such a fundamental sort of piece of the way that mental health is dealt with can you just kind of talk about your interest in that yes the the silently successful there are people who have and we're specifically talking about bipolar disorder there are people who have bipolar disorder who do what they need to do to stay well. As I started off by telling you, I've been well for 25 plus years. My daughters, raise your hand daughters. My daughters' lives by the grace of God have not been affected by the illness. And you know, that's, that's something wonderful. Get me back on track, Emma. No, I mean, I think, I think that is wonderful. And I think just the, the resonance for you of that sense of um, there's a sort of that, that there are those who, that there's a, a sort of benefit to speaking more openly about right. it, that some of what you were experiencing in that moment with your grandmother mm-hmm. was a, a self-knowledge yes. because you were perceptive, because yes. you were insightful, because yep. you have a sense of interiority, right? Yes. And that that's a good thing. Yes. And there's a fear of of acknowledging that um and i i thought that i think that that's sort of that's again maybe connected to why you wrote the book i mean what was there a motivating factor here there was and so back to the silently successful the silently successful are people who are living well with a mental illness but people don't know because they're asymptomatic they're not showing forth signs that people can see so because people can't see it they think, oh, that person is totally healthy. When I went to write my book and I had shared with some people, some fellow writers, that you know, I had gotten that diagnosis, they said, oh, so your book is about how the diagnosis was wrong and that's why you're writing the book because the diagnosis was wrong and so you wanna tell people about misdiagnosis. And I said, no, my book is about how the diagnosis was right and what I did to live well with that diagnosis. And people have to, there has to be an acceptance. You asked, why did I write the book? People encouraged me. I was trained as a fiction writer I, at Wesleyan and at Hopkins. And people encouraged me to write it as fiction because it was um, so tough emotionally to share. And they said, Sharita, just write fiction. Just, But what would happen if I wrote fiction, you wouldn't know what was true and what wasn't true because I could add things, I could take away things, I could make things worse that I knew weren't me. But instead, I decided to write my truth. So when you write a memoir, a memoir is how you remember it, not how your sister remembers it, not how your cousin remembers it, not what the dog thought, but how you remember the situation that you were going through. And so for me, I thought because I look, quote, normal, you know, I always say, quote, normal, because I don't know what normal is. And but because I look, quote, normal, people are like, okay, so you couldn't possibly have an illness. But I do. And when you look at the 22, 23, 25, 26 year old woman who was struggling and struggling and struggling because I was not willing to say that I had bipolar illness. I wanted it to be an anomaly. I wanted it to be something that was gonna go away. And finally, when I had a three year remission, I realized this really is what it is. And I need to do something to deal with it. And when I went to pastoral counseling for two and a half years, 
I didn't know how long the remission would be, mm -hmm. the recovery period would be. It had been three years. If I could get five years, I'd be happy. If I could get three years and eight months, I'd be happy. I was just trying to go for longer. So what I got was more than 25 years. And what I, I started counting after my daughter's birth. My daughter, can I say your age? Okay, my daughter's about to be 29. And I had postpartum with her. So I had mania and depression after her birth. And it was because I didn't want to take my medicine because I wanted to breastfeed. You know, I was like, I want to have natural childbirth. I want to breastfeed. I, and it was so stressful after 45 hours of labor that it, 45 hours of labor, that it, that it, that it all, all worth it, I think. Uh, all worth it. <laughs> that it, that it kicked, that it kicked me into the mania and then the depression. But what I will say that I was really blessed was I had round the clock people coming to take care of me. My girlfriend who lived, I guess at that time she must have lived in Texas. She came for a week. My mom came, my, my sisters took turns coming, my husband's aunt came. People just came and took care of me and the baby so that we could be okay while I got back on my regimen with my medicine. Yeah, no, and that's a remarkable thing that also comes through in the book is just the, the strength and the, the sense of um, the affection and just the sort of density of the family ties uh, in your family are remarkable. Um, I also think that sort of what you were saying about the purpose of writing the book, um, it makes it really resonant that it is your story, that you yes. are sharing this, that this, these are raw feelings and this is raw content, I think makes it powerful, makes it resonant, and is an act of generosity, as I interpret it, mm -hmm. to the readers, that we are being sort of allowed into this experience and that you're making yourself kind of visible and vulnerable in that way. Um, and I, I think also what you were saying there about kind of what you wrestled with, it, it shows a strength that's building in you, which leads me to another question I have, which is okay. the structure of the book a bit, that okay. it moves from your childhood, the experiences you had, the diagnosis, and it leads up until your wedding, uh, and this sense of this assertion of love and of family and of, of that being a healing thing. Um, and then there's this kind of extraordinary afterward, which is that uh, Shrita gets married, and then two and a half years later, after the birth of her two daughters, um, her husband dies young, unexpectedly. And it's, it, I found it remarkable as a reader that, that that came after the arc of this story. And I just wanted to ask you about that. How did you decide to do that? Well, I thought that we had to catch people up. I'm not planning, I'm not Maya Angelou, and I'm not I'm planning to do no, four. No. I'm planning to do four or five. <laughs> yeah. Every time I live 10 years, I write another book. I'm not planning to do that. I'm a fiction writer. I told you guys that. So um, that's what I'm planning to do. I thought, like my, my younger daughter, Anita, had asked me, she said they had read the end of the book, but not the, the epilogue. And they said to me, they said, one said, do, you, do they know that our father dies? And I said, you know, turn the page. <laughs> and, you know, then, then, they, then they do know that. That's, that's something that they know. But one of the things that was wonderful about my marriage, although it was brief, was I experienced so much love in that, in my marriage. And the thing about love, um, there's a, a scripture in... Um, it's either in Song of Solomon or Proverbs in the Bible, but it says many waters cannot quench love. And when somebody really loves you, they really love you. And you know, my family really loved me, and then my husband really loved me, and then I really love the girls. And love can enable you to do some things that you didn't think you could do. And being with my husband really did add additional strength to me. You know, I understood that I was married to a person that loved me like he loved himself, and he really loved himself. 
So <laughs> it, you know, so so it was no, because sometimes people marry somebody who does not love themselves, and then you wonder why can't he love me? Because yeah. he can't love him, so he can't love you either. And so you know, so that's a side note. If you're not married and you want to get married, marry somebody who loves himself a lot, not narcissism, but somebody, <laughs> but somebody who loves himself, but somebody who loves himself a lot. Now, um, one of the things that I would I wanted to say. Um, there, this is because this is a NAMI event. Um, at NAMI, one of the things we focus on is curing the stigma of mental illness. We don't have um, a cure for mental illnesses. They are mental illnesses, but we can cure the stigma around them. And I'm going to ask you one of the cure stigma questions. So the, the thought is, I think people with mental illness, A, need to snap out of it. B, did something wrong to cause it. C, need our love and support. D, or sometimes faking it. It's not all of the above. It is not all of the above. People with mental illness are not faking it, sir. <laughs> but I like that. But the, but, yes, sir. Okay. Okay, but the answer, I'm going to give you the answer. The answer is I think people with mental illness need our love and support. So I, I brought out how much my husband loved me. And you'll read in the book how that wasn't really popular with some people because they didn't understand why he would marry somebody who had a mental health diagnosis. But that's... That's but he does, and it's it is an amazing sort of testament, I think, to the healing power and of love and compassion and and all those things. And I think that that's a beautiful sentiment on which to end this book and this uh, this part of the Q and A, um, which means that we get to open up questions to the crowd. So. Can I say one thing before you before we start before sure. we ask questions? I have a quote that I wanted to share. This besides the stigma question, this is something that Desmond Tutu said. He said, we need to stop just pulling people out of the river. We need to go upstream and find out why they're falling in. And with mental health challenges, we need to find out why people are experiencing what they're experiencing. We don't need to just pull them out and say, okay, you're out this week. We need to say, what can we do? What kind of wellness recovery plan can we create around you so you can be okay? And the best wellness recovery plans, Emma, and audience, are recovery plans that you create yourself. You know, I have had to come up with what is going to keep me well. But I must say before we open it up that this book is about acknowledging that I had a mental illness. It's about, once I acknowledged it, deciding to do something about it. And, you know, I don't burn the midnight oil. I don't stay up all night. I didn't drink anyway, but I don't drink, wouldn't drink because it goes against my medication. So it's about creating, and I have a good life. It's about creating a good life that honors who you are. You don't have to have a terrible life because you have a psychiatric diagnosis. You can live well with bipolar disorder. Yeah, and I think definitely you get that from the reading experience. And I will say the other thing as we throw up in a question and answer, and in terms of this being a NAMI event, is I think as a reader you also really get a sense that a strong, compassionate, loving community is a component of that as well. And that, yes. that, that leads to health and that leads to acceptance and all of these things. And that your family and your community and your faith community had this incredibly transformative effect and yes. that that's a remarkable thing. And almost, almost nobody gets well alone. And I always say almost nobody. I haven't really met anybody who got well by themselves. But you, I had a village, and I am very fortunate that I had a village 
but I've seen people that just had one person, just one friend that just stuck with them through thick and thin, and when the, when the, as they say, when it got thick, they didn't thin out. And that, sometimes that's all you need, just one person that is there advocating with, for you and loving you. That is beautiful. <laughs> Hope everyone does. Would you like to make a comment and be our first comment, sir? <laughs> or, yeah. Do you have a question? Or? No? Good evening. Good evening. First of all, I'd like to say I'm proud of you in all your endeavors. And um, I wanted to know when you were were in the facility, I'm going to say, and they were giving you meds. Did you have, did the doctors have to get permission from your parents? What was the procedure for you to get certain medication? Or because you were over a certain age of 21, you gave consent? Because, thank you for that question. Because I was 21 and because I was admitted by doctors, I was actually committed to the hospital. So they could give me what they wanted to give me. So in 1982, when I left school two years before, two months, I'm sorry, two months before graduation, they were able to give me whatever they wanted. I was 22, so my parents didn't have a say in what they were doing because I was an adult. And at that juncture, they told me that if I didn't take medicine, I wasn't getting out of the facility. So I had been in a facility in 1980 to 81 for 15 days. And once the mania subsided, they let me go home. And they, because I wouldn't take medicine, I didn't. But then I got sick again in 1982, and that was when they said, we're not letting you go home unless you agree. So I agreed. And what you saw in what I read about 1983 was because even though I had a bipolar diagnosis, it was like, just in case she's schizophrenic, we'll give her these other, this other medication too. And it was like zombie land for me. Um, I don't know that I don't know that I can actually give the best definition of um, schizophrenia. I'm looking at my girlfriend and I'm wondering if she would do it for me. Would you do it for me? Thank you. This is my beautiful Alexis Brown. She's my mentor. <laughs> Hello, everyone. First, I'd just like to say, Sharita, I'm so proud of you for speaking your truth and really appreciate you sharing what you have today. Um, as far as the diagnosis of schizophrenia, the reason she said that I could probably answer that is because my loved one, who is my son, has a diagnosis of schizophrenia. And what I can say about that, because I'm not a doctor either, but I can just tell you what the symptoms are of a person with schizophrenia and how they respond. Oftentimes, people who are diagnosed with schizophrenia have hallucinations, delusions, um, they withdraw, they're negative and positive symptoms, sometimes they're um, the way they care for themselves, they're not able to do so properly. Um, but mostly when people think about people with schizophrenia, it's the hallucinations and delusions that they're suffering and experiencing. I have a question for In her book, in her book, there was someone that said that, because I read the book. Thank you. That, uh, Black people, you wrote this. Yeah. The person said that black people are not intelligent enough to be schizophrenic. Yes, and I read that. They that was and that was a misnomer. Um, I read that at the beginning. Um, the the thing about that was it was it's called physician bias, and the physician who. Did, who put that forth was he wasn't he wasn't an American doctor even, but 
That was his bias, and that is why um, people are trying to do better. I did my book launch with somebody from, with one of the mood disorders doctors from Hopkins. We're gonna do something else together in April. And what, she actually apologized for doctors because she said now they're trying to train doctors to understand more about the mental illnesses. Was and that not, a racist statement? Oh yeah, that's what it was, sir. Absolutely, it was a racist statement. That's what it was. Oh, 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 you you also, in the back of the book, told about some relative of yours that did some research on your family background. Yes. That there was a relative on the Eastern Shore. She yes. was white. Yes. And she married a relative. She married a black man. Yes, which was part, became part of your family. Right. Okay. That's, and, that's, that's where our, our name came from. The woman right. in the 1700s. Her name was Mary Stanley. That, she married a black man. Stanley. Yes, and so I'm one of the Stanleys. Okay. And what happened is they inbred, they inbred, like um, you have Tay-Sachs disease among Jewish people. In our family, they were living in, is it Calvert County? No, no, Cambridge. They were living in yes. Cambridge at the same, oh, I'm not speaking in a mic. They were living in Cambridge at the same time as Harriet Tubman. Yes, that's in the book. Yes, it's in the book. And what they did was they inbred so that they could hide. And they were, you know, very fair-skinned people. My grandfather, my mom said, had red hair and blue eyes. And he married a very darkly complected woman. And one of the family stories, of course, I wasn't born, was that somebody wanted to know why that black man had those, why that white man had those little black children with him, and those were his kids. Yes, sir. There's only one race, the oh. human race. Yes, sir. We all are the same, whatever the color we are. Yes, There's sir. Only one race. Yes, There's sir. No thing white, black, we're all one. Now, let me say this to you. You okay. may. Mental illness can possibly be something that it's, it's, it can be a situation where association brings on assimilation. Mm -hmm. So because there was things happening in your family, but like with your grandmother, mm -hmm. and you saw that, mm -hmm. and you started worrying about yourself, mm -hmm. that's understandable. Okay. So, you know, you, some people can say that, well, it's something that is totally physical, but see, stress can bring on all kinds of things. Yes, sir. I'm an ex-military person. I suffer from post-traumatic stress. Yes, sir. Vietnam and Korea. Thank you for your service. No, please. I was drafted. Don't oh, don't thank you for... Yes, no, sir. I was drafted. <laughs> I'm a college graduate. I went to college to avoid the draft. I'm 75 years old. I came here because when I saw your book, your paper, I made copies to give to everyone out here because this is remarkable right here. Absolutely remarkable. We appreciate you.
Sir, what Thank is your name? My name is Peter Mickle. Peter Mickle, hopefully we can talk when this is over. Oh, yes. And we're going to move and ask some other oh, questions. Yes. Bring everybody in. Thank you so much. Yes. I really appreciate That's you, Mr. Mickle. We'll do two hey, more I'm questions. <laughs> two more questions. You know, I get frustrated too with the justice system. Yes. You know what I'm saying? Yes. If you think that justice in this country is equal and you live in a dream, you know what I'm Look what happened to our, 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 our dear mayor today on the, on the news. She wrote, she wrote a book and then they tried to chastise her and everything. We, we're actually going to bring it back <laughs> to, the, to the person yeah. with the mic. We're going to give I it am. to the person with the mic. Here I am. Okay. I just want to say, you are not alone. No. I am bipolar, and I'm a highly functional bipolar black woman. So if you are out here, you may not know because... And that's the point. Right. Yes. Yeah, that's the point. And I let people know, um, mainly because, like I said, I'm highly functional. So they're always surprised and think, are you sure? Are you yes, <laughs> are you sure? Right, right. All, I wouldn't say just all. Mr. Minkle, we're gonna, I'm going yeah, to talk to you later. <laughs> yeah. Well, first I'd like to thank you for your courage and for giving us a voice. I really didn't need the mic, but because uh, <clears throat> I got it in here. I, I also got a frog in there. But um, I'd like to say that um, there's a lot of ignorance that's, that's out there in terms of race, whether it's race relations or uh, mental health issues. And all of it stems from, I mean, not, I cannot say where exactly it stems, but I would like to ask, how did you, in terms of look at it and feel, and even though society is saying you are a certain way and you're not gonna be able to make it, because my situation, I'd like to give an example to clarify and edify, is that um, I come from a country called Zimbabwe so over there, there's some controversy that's going on about land ownership. Mm -hmm. And some of my family members were against that, were, were for uh, the, the eviction of white people out of our country. And so not to upset anyone, because obviously we understand as intellectuals that we are all a part of one human family. But those that's, that are ignorant still want to divide people according to race and certain other things. So um, I, I, me and my sister worked together actively on behalf of those that were um, marginalized back home against our own family members. And so as I spoke to my counselor and explained that, well, my sister was pretty peed off be, uh, because of the current president and his st stance on immigration. So we're supposed to go back home. Mm -hmm. So as a, as a believer, I also believe in vision. So I saw a certain image of what would happen in South Africa and Namibia if we had aligned ourselves with our family members and spoke on on behalf of that. So she then diagnosed, the very first time she met me, because I was having those recurring nightmares, she just diagnosed me as saying, as, as be, or she wrote grandiose with a question mark in her notes. Uh -huh. So I was like, okay, is, is it, how's it grandiose? And then I, started, I read a book about how certain um, psychiatrists from, um, from a different race or antipathous to the, the, to the struggles or cannot identify with anything. So whereas they'll say if someone is intelligent or a black person is articulate, they'll say, oh, he's bougie or certain, certain <laughs> other things. Or, and the various things. So to, to kind of like bring it back, I was misdiagnosed. And when I told that I was diagnosed with PTSD, based on me coming from a third world country and experiencing such gruesome um, treatment by Christian conservatives, that she would look at it like, whoa, wait a minute, cuckoo, you come from a third world country into a first world country, and, and you get diagnosed with PTSD? So it's not always racial. Sometimes it's just uh, cultural, and Correct. it all stems, it all takes us back to, to, to ignorance. But I'd like to thank you for, for shedding light and giving us a voice. And I don't know, there was supposed to be a question in there, but I don't want to hold up everybody. <laughs> All right, thank I, you. I thank you for bringing up the fact that sometimes it is cultural. It is not always racial. Sometimes it has to do with, you know, where you're from. Well, thank you so much to all of you for absolutely wonderful questions. And, of course, to Sharita for writing a beautiful book, sharing this incredibly personal story with all of us, I think providing a model for what it is to be really sort of open and public about these experiences and for being with us tonight. Um, so it was an absolutely wonderful thing. And thanks to the Pratt for hosting, of course.
Thank you so much, Sharita, Emma, both of you for being here in conversation, and Sharita for sharing your story. Thank you all for being here tonight, and a lot of you for sharing your stories. This podcast is a production of the Enoch Pratt Free Library and the Maryland State Library Resource Center. For more information and to access more library resources, please visit prattlibrary.org.